Good afternoon. Still asleep. Uh, yeah, I'm really thankful to, um, to the guys for giving me the opportunity, um, again, to, to open God's Word um, to you. Um, yeah, hopefully the, the work that I've put in this week uh, will, will reap some fruit. Um, let's, uh, let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word um, to give us uh, instruction and to, to tell us about you and your character um, and your rescue plan for us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, help me to uh, explain it clearly and truthfully um, and uh, that hearts would be um, open to hearing and to, to changing through it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever watched the TV show Prison Break. Anyone? Got one person right at the back. Um, it is it's quite old now. Um, I think it started in 2005, ran for uh, four series. Um, I've watched the first couple of series on, on Netflix. Definitely recommended. Um, really good. If you haven't seen it, the basic premise is that there's this guy, uh, Lincoln Burroughs, who has been given the, the death penalty. Um, he's been put in prison. Um, and he claims that he, that he didn't commit this murder. Um, and so his brother, uh, Michael Schofield, comes up with this plan to get him out of prison. Um, the plan involves Michael himself, um, who is a, a successful, um, wealthy engineer. Uh, it involves him actually getting himself into the prison. So he gets arrested um, for uh, robbing a bank um, uh, deliberately so that he can get into the prison to try and get his brother out. Um, and I'm going to show you a little clip here. Um, so Michael has just been put in prison. First part of his plan is uh, the easy part, I guess, is uh, is done. Um, and he's just explaining what his plan is to his brother, who's like, "What on earth are you doing?" Um, so I'm just going to watch um, a, a couple of minutes. Oh, I'll turn off the lights. So mean what you said earlier? I'm not here on vacation. Trust me. Getting outside these walls, that's just the beginning. You're gonna need money. I'll have it. And people on the outside. People that can help you disappear. I've already got them. They just don't know it yet. Look, whatever you got going on, fill me in. I'm in the dark here. Shepard Associates got the contract to retrofit this place in 99. $4 million contract. Head partner couldn't crack it. So he subcontracted out. An under-the-table sort of deal with a former associate. That guy was one of the partners in my firm. We basically ghost-wrote the whole plan. Crossed the T's, dotted the I's, grabbed the tiles. the blueprints. Better than that. I've got them on me. Are you kidding me? Am I supposed to be seeing something here? Look closer.
that was basically the moment that kind of had me hooked um, there. I thought it was such a cool idea. Like he's, you know, he needs the, these blueprints. He's seen them. He puts them on himself so that he can take them into prison. I, I thought it was amazing. So yeah, I highly recommend um, watching the show. Um, so this is a, a rescue mission. And I think in any rescue mission, there are four questions um, that, that need to be answered. Um, one question that doesn't usually need to be answered is, will they be rescued? Like, that's usually pretty obvious from the start. Um, I, I know only, only Rich has seen it, but I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything to say that they do get out of prison because, you know, it wouldn't be called prison break um, otherwise. Um, that, that's, you know, it's usually, um, you know, from the start, you know that they're going to get out. Um, but it's more in the detail um, in the answers to these, uh, these four questions. Here they are. Uh, what is someone being rescued from? Why does someone want to rescue them? Who is it who's doing the rescuing? And how is the rescue accomplished? Um, and I guess the, the answers of these, um, the answers to these, you could call uh, the, the components of a rescue mission or, or the blueprint um, of a rescue mission. In Prison Break, the answers go, go something like this. Um, I'll try not to give any spoilers. So what, what is someone being rescued from? What well, Lincoln Burroughs is being rescued from the death penalty. Why does someone want to rescue him? Uh, someone wants to rescue him because they love him and that they believe that he's innocent and, and should be freed. Who is doing the rescuing? Uh, well, it's Michael Schofield, Lincoln's brother, who is a, a very intelligent, very uh, well-off um, engineer uh, with access to blueprints of the prison. And how is the rescue accomplished? Uh, it's accomplished through Michael's um, plan that he's planned out kind of intricately. Um, but obviously along the way, there's plenty of luck um, and other people um, who help out in the story. Um, so what's this got to do with Judges? Well, I think in these next couple of chapters of Judges, there's another rescue mission taking place. Israel's under oppression again. And as we read through the passage, the answers to these four questions start to become clear. It's a kind of blueprint of how God does rescue missions. Um, so those, those four questions again. What is someone being rescued from? Why does someone want to rescue them? Who is doing the rescuing? And how is the rescuing accomplished? So we'll, we'll go through those uh, four questions um, one by one. Um, so the first question that is answered is, what is Israel being rescued from? Uh, and I'll, yeah, we'll put the questions up um, and the answers um, on the screen. Um, and, uh, so the answer comes in the first nine verses of chapter 10. Um, the answer is, they're being rescued from idolatry and slavery. So if you've got your Bibles open, um, it's always helpful to, to do that so you can check that what I'm saying is actually in there and I'm not just making it up. Um, we're going to read the first nine verses of chapter 10. Um, feel free to go and get a Bible if you, if you haven't got one. Um, we're on page 254, um, if you've got a church Bible, Judges chapter 10. So, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shemir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel for 23 years, and then he died, and was buried in Shemir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jair. 
When Jair died, he was buried in Kirmon. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They said the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. So the book of Judges has been a a continual cycle of Israel uh, worshipping other gods, being punished through oppression um, by these different nations, and crying out for help, and then God raises a judge to save them. When the judge dies, things go back to how they were, or usually even worse. Um, It's kind of more of a a downward spiral um, than, than a cycle. Last week we saw that things had got pretty bad to the point where civil war was was breaking out almost over the appointment of Abimelech um, who murdered 70 of his brothers and he was appointed as an illegitimate king. So what would happen now? Would Israel just descend into chaos and, and break apart? Well, God doesn't allow that. Um, as we see in the first, those first five verses of chapter 10, God continues to raise up judges to save Israel. We get quite brief accounts, really, of um, of Tola and Jair, but I think we can assume that the cycle continues to repeat with these guys. Um, we, don't, we don't get all the details of that. And when Jair dies, Israel, once again, goes back to their sinful ways. Look down at verse 6. Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They've got such short memories, despite all the history, despite all that God has done for them. Um, they, they return to their sinful ways. And as we've said, things become worse than ever. Um, let's carry on reading verse 6. This ebbs the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. That is quite a list of foreign gods that they serve. They're, they're the gods who Israel are putting, uh, whose authority Israel are putting themselves under. They're praying to them, they're making sacrifices to them, they've been drawn in to this um, like polytheistic uh, pagan uh, culture of the surrounding nations. And where is Yahweh in all this? The God who brought them out of Egypt, who continually uh, saves them and rescues them from trouble, who doesn't go back on his promises. Well, he's forsaken. They forsook the Lord and no longer served him. He's abandoned. He's, he's pushed to one side. He's forgotten about. And the result is that God is angry. Not like uh, a friend who gets uh, jealous and angry when you start spending too much time with someone else. But more like a father whose teenage daughter has stayed out all night without him knowing where she is. And so Israel... Um, Israel is given up to the enemy. In this case, it's the Ammonites and the Philistines. Uh, God basically says to the invaders, here, they don't want me, you can have them. 
And just as the idolatry of Israel is worse than ever, so the, the punishment is worse, the, uh, the oppression is worse than ever in length, depth, and breadth. In length, because it lasts 18 years, which is one of the longest periods we've seen so far. Uh, in depth, because they're not just invaded, but they're shattered and crushed. It's a, and in breadth, because the invaders, they came in from the east and they push uh, all the way to the River Jordan and even cross over it and start to, um, start to attack the other side as well. Why is this God's judgment for the sin? Well, basically, he's letting them have exactly what they want. You want to serve and worship and be controlled by idols? Fine, you got it. Uh, Skip ahead a little bit to verse 14. God says to them, go and cry out to the God you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Idolatry leads to slavery. And how foolish are Israel? I mean, they carry on worshipping these foreign gods even when they're under the rule of, um, of the people whose gods they are. God has warned them time and again that idolatry leads to slavery. They've seen it before. They've seen it lots of times. And yet they go back to this way of living. And we're given the same warning by God as well. We might not be likely to start worshipping you know, bits of wood and metal or objects in the sky. But in our hearts, we place other things uh, above God. Anything that takes uh, the place in our lives that is rightfully reserved for God um, is an idol. And idols control us, they enslave us. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to some Christians in Rome, uh, touches on this subject. He says that people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look uh, like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. God gave them over. He he let them have what they want, which is to be controlled by their idols. Uh, The American pastor and author, uh, Tim Keller, says this. So God says to the people who worship money, if you want to live for money instead of for me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and emotions If you want to live for popularity instead of for me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving and guiding and enlightening you. The only way that we can be free is by serving and worshipping God. When we put something else in his place, then it will enslave us. So what are Israel being rescued from? They're being rescued from idolatry and slavery. So we come to the second question. Why does God want to rescue them? These these sinful people, why does God want to rescue them? Answer, he wants to rescue them because of his mercy. Um, Look back down at at verse 10. Then the Israelites cried out to, to the Lord, we've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maronites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. 
Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. At first, it seems like God doesn't want to help them. When Israel cries out, he's he's a bit more reticent than usual. Not because he's feeling a bit grumpy, but because Israel have been so persistent in turning away from him in the face of his continual love and forgiveness. And notice that Israel don't really seem to understand the sin, at least at first. They're just like, yeah, we've sinned, it's gone bad, please help us, God. They kind of treat God like a vending machine. They're, you know, they kind of put confession in and out pops salvation. That's what they think God is like. They're not really repentant of all their sin. They haven't really turned away from, they haven't, they haven't forsaken these idols. They're just feeling a bit miserable, miserable about the consequences of their sin and their, their oppression by Alan. I think this is something that, that we're all guilty of. Sometimes it's in big ways. I'm sorry for drinking too much, but only because it's affecting my health. I'm sorry for having an affair, but only because my family has broken down as a result. Uh, but it's often smaller things as well. I'm sorry for getting angry, but only because this person has stopped talking to me. Or I'm sorry for lying, but only because I was embarrassed that, that I was found out. I'm sorry for spending my money foolishly, but only because it means I'm now struggling to make ends meet. Or, or even, it might be, I'm sorry for my sin in general, but only because it makes me feel quite guilty. And I don't like that feeling. Of course, sin will often, not always, but it will often have negative consequences. When we don't live the way that we were made to live, when we don't uh, follow God's instructions for us, when we ignore what he said is the, is the best way to live, then of course we should expect things to go wrong. But true repentance is being sorry for the sin itself and for its motives rather than just its consequences. Um, even if there are no consequences, I guess. However, uh, back to the story, God points out to Israel how terrible their sin is and they finally seem to get it, just a little bit. Verse 15 says, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. They understand that there are consequences of their sins. They get rid of the foreign gods um, and, and they seem to have reached some kind of true repentance. They've turned their backs on their idols and they've turned back towards God. They're on their knees in sorrow um, uh, over their sin and not just its consequences. And because of their repentant hearts, God decides that they are worthy of being rescued. Except that's not what it says, is it? Look back down at verse 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God doesn't save them because of their repentant hearts. There isn't an implication that the second half of the verse flows out of the first half. There's no sir or therefore. The reason God saves them stands on its own. He rescues them because he can't stand to see them miserable. God looks at his chosen people. He sees that they're in great distress and he is moved uh, to show compassion on them. 
the conversation is just to get Israel to a place where they understand what they've done and what it means um, to God. Um, God acts because of his mercy to his miserable people. We mustn't make this mistake. We, we know that salvation is not by works, that it is a gift of God's grace. But we must be careful in the, in the language we use because it's easy to make, like, make out like our salvation is, is earned by how repentant we are. I think there's a fine line because um, salvation does come through faith and repentance. The Bible is, is clear on that. But again, God is not a vending machine. We don't put in repentance and get out salvation and forgiveness. God doesn't forgive us on the basis of how sorry we are. We, we couldn't ever earn forgiveness by being sorry. Um, it is absolutely true to say that those who repent and believe um, are forgiven by God uh, and come into a right relationship with him. But it is not true to say that this is the reason God forgives. Um, let me read you a quote from uh, Dale Ralph Davis, who, um, who's commented on this passage. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. It is very difficult for us to imagine how much Israel's misery moves Yahweh. It's as if he cannot stand to see his people, even his sinful people, crushed. In all their affliction, he is afflicted. That is why we have this seeming tension between judgment and grace in Scripture. A tension not merely in the text of Scripture, but in the character of Yahweh himself. For he is the God whose holiness demands he judge his people, yet whose heart moves him to spare his people. So you get that at the start? Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. This is great news for us. Because we're never truly repentant, as we should be. We often have wrong motives for saying sorry, whether that's because we want saving from the consequences of sin or whatever. But God forgives us even with our poor attempts at repentance. So why does God want to rescue Israel? He wants to rescue them because of his mercy. So, uh, God will rescue Israel, but who is he going to do it through? The third question, who is doing the rescuing? And the answer is, God is doing the rescuing through an unlikely man. Uh, so we'll read the next, um, the next chunk from verse 17 of chapter 10. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Uh, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, 
be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why did you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. I think it's fair to say that so far uh, in Judges, God hasn't always made the obvious choice uh, um, of who to pick um, as the judge. If you think back to, um, to Gideon, if you can remember before Christmas, um, Gideon was the least in his family, uh, and um, his, his clan was the weakest clan in the whole of the tribe of Manasseh. But I think the judge in this chapter, uh, Jephthah, is more unlikely than most. Um, and the writer of Judges helpfully gives us a quick rundown um, of, uh, of who he is, what we need to know about him. Uh, he was a Gileadite. So he was from Gilead, which was a region um, in Israel, east of the Jordan. Uh, he was a mighty warrior. Um, remember God calling uh, Gideon a mighty warrior uh, when he really didn't feel like it. Jephthah really was a mighty warrior. Uh, his dad was called Gilead, which is a little bit confusing. So he was from Gilead, and his dad was called Gilead. Um, you can imagine that conversation, can't you? Where are you from? Rotherham. What's your dad's name? Rotherham. Are you answering the same question? Anyway, um, so mo- mo- but most importantly, um, the thing that we need to know about Jephthah is that his mum was a prostitute, and because of this, his half-brothers rejected him. They were like, we don't want anything to do with you. Go away. So he didn't get a normal um, family upbringing. It was, it was a bit dysfunctional there. And because he didn't have the support of his own family, he had to go and make his own way in the world. He got involved with this gang of... Um, well, there's, there's a few different translations. Uh, we, we read adventurers in the NIV. Um, others translate it scoundrels or worthless fellows or lawless men. Um, and my, my first reaction to this was, tell me more about Jephthah and his, like, his band of merry men. Like, it kind of sounds a bit like Robin Hood, doesn't it? Like, he's this, this kind of figure who goes on amazing adventures with these guys. Um, but, but as I've read into it a bit more, it seems like they were just kind of, uh, a gang who went around um, doing crime for money, um, which is not quite as good. Um, so, so Jephthah was not your typical pure-blood, righteous uh, Israelite. But the big thing that Jephthah had in his favour is that he was a leader. He wasn't just one of these scoundrels or adventurers, but he was the leader of them. They had kind of gathered around him. And, and so he, he obviously had... Um, Good leadership skills and qualities. And it's for that reason that the elders of Gilead decide that they want him um, and invite him to come back and to lead the charge against Ammon. There's a bit of back and forth between Jephthah and Gilead. He wants to know what's in it for him. They've kicked him out. Why should he come back and help them now? Just because they're, they're in a bit of trouble. It's, kind of, it's a bit similar to um, the, the, the dialogue between Israel and God that we read earlier on. Uh, he was rejected, as God was, 
Um, but then those who rejected him came and, and tried to, to win him back and to ask for help. Um, the difference is that Jephthah is a human being. Uh, he's not the merciful God of Israel. And, and Jephthah wants something in return. He doesn't just want the command of the army. He wants to be the leader of Gilead, the leader of all Gilead. Um, the men of Gilead agree. They think, yeah, this is a, this is a good idea. Um, and Jephthah becomes their leader. I think the interesting thing here is that Gilead needs a leader. And now they can't find one from among themselves. They, there just so happens to be one um, from outside who can come in and help them. I say they just so happen to find one. What, what I really mean is that God has been shaping and molding this person um, to be the person uh, that is needed for Israel at this point. It kind of seems like Jeff has been given a raw deal in life. If we were going to judge him based on his circumstances, we might have said that God was not with him, that he was not uh, blessing him. But in actual fact, God's been with him all along. Through all the tough circumstances, through the rejection by his brothers, uh, working in all these things to make him the person that Israel needed. A person who later on in the Bible is, uh, is lauded in Hebrews 11 um, as, as a man of great faith. So God uses unlikely people. He uses those that society has cast out who from the outside appear to be maybe down on their luck. Uh, and he does this because it glorifies him. It shows that it's not through human strength um, and wisdom that great things are accomplished, but through God's. So if you feel like you're going through a rough time, if you feel like things are not going your way, like life is just not really uh, working out as you might have planned it, remember that God has not abandoned you. He is teaching and shaping you and molding you into the person that he wants you to be so that he can do great things through you. He is fitting you for the role that he wants you to take in his big story. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we should ignore all our worries and problems and keep them to ourselves and, you know, be happy all the time. But it, but it means that circumstances don't have to crush us because there is a reason. And this is a great hope that Christians can cling to. So who is doing the rescuing? God is doing the rescuing through an unlikely man. So speaking of how uh, God shapes and molds people, this leads um, to, uh, to the next question, the final question. How is the rescue carried out? And the answer is, according to God's plan. Um, I don't want to steal Ian's thunder. Next week he's going to deal with the battle with Ammon and its aftermath. Um, but spoiler alert, again, I'm sorry, uh, Israel is rescued through Jephthah. They defeat the Ammonites and have a bit of peace for a while. It's not really a surprise because we know how the cycle works by now. But it's clear through the passage that God isn't just reacting to circumstances. He's not uh, waiting to see how things pan out and then intervening when necessary. He's been in control of events from the start, planning things out and moving things into position. Uh, in prison break, uh, to go back there, Michael Schofield has got a plan. Uh, we saw it tattooed on his body. He's got the, the blueprints on there, but he's also got lots of little like helpful hints to, to help him remember things along the way. Um, and things don't always work out as planned. He's got a lot of contingencies in there, 
but but he does rely on a lot of um, just luck, um, really. Um, he's pretty quick thinking, um, you know, thinking on his feet. But he but he still is just reacting. His plans are like they're a hope of how things might turn out. Um, but God has not made a plan that's dependent on others doing their bit or acting in a particular way. God's made a plan that will absolutely 100% succeed. Even when people try to ruin it, all they're doing is, is fulfilling what God had planned anyway. Israel needed a strong leader to lead them against the Ammonites, and God had been preparing Jephthah for, for years, for, for his whole life, um, to, to, to make this happen. And he even used the sin of Gilead's sons for good. Um, it seems as though the rejection and the exile um, actually made Jephthah into the person who was able to, to lead them in battle later on. This might remind you of another story in the Bible, um, that of Joseph. He was sold as a slave by his brothers. But as a result of that, he became quite a powerful man in Egypt, and he was able to save them from a famine like years later down the line. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says, You intended to harm me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, this doesn't make sin okay. Sin is our responsibility, uh, and, and it grieves God and it offends him. But by his grace, God will use our past mistakes and others' uh, past mistakes for our good. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're a Christian, God has his hand in every circumstance, in every event, um, so that things will work out for your good. So we've looked at two different uh, rescue missions there. um, And I want to look at one more uh, as we close. Because the rescue mission in Judges really uh, points us forward to God's ultimate rescue mission. Hundreds of years in their future. Um, and the ones being rescued are us. So let, let's think about it in terms of those four questions again. What are we being rescued from? We're being rescued from sin. From our idolatry which leads to slavery and judgment and death. We're sinners who reject God and put other things in his place. God is is rightly angry, and therefore his judgment is on us, and we're heading for doom. Why are we being rescued? We're being rescued because of God's mercy. God is just. He will punish sin, but he is also merciful. He can't bear to see his people miserable. We're not being rescued because we come to church, uh, or because we say our prayers, or we try really hard to be good, or we're really, 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 really sorry. We're being rescued because of who God is, because he is merciful. Who is doing the rescuing? Uh, The person doing the rescuing is an unlikely man, Jesus. Someone from a backwater town in Israel uh, who was rejected by his family and his friends, and he was hung up on a cross to die. On that Friday, as his body was, was laid in a tomb, it seemed impossible that he was going to do any rescuing. He couldn't even rescue himself. Question four, how is the rescue accomplished? The rescue is accomplished according to God's plan. 
God had planned way in advance how he was going to rescue his people. His plan was for his son to come into the world and to die on the cross. He predicted it through his prophets thousands of years before. Jephthah and, and all of the judges really point us forward to Jesus in, in the way that they lead and rescue people. The difference is that, that the judges are humans, they're flawed, and some of them immensely so. But Jesus fulfills the role of leader that we need perfectly. Even though he'd not done anything wrong, sinful men wanted him dead and put on the cross. The devil wanted him dead and out of the way because he was dangerous to his plans. But in the exact moment of their triumph, they were defeated. In his death, Jesus, the only sinless man who has ever lived, took on our sin. He took it onto himself uh, and opened the way for us to have a right relationship with God. He clothed us in his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees not the wrong things that we have done, but all of the good things that Jesus has done. Mission accomplished. Let's sing.